Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is post-mortem survival and the physical universe. My guest is Ruth Kastner, who is a philosopher specializing in the interpretation of quantum physics. She is the author of Understanding Our Unseen Reality, Solving Quantum Riddles, Adventures in Quantum Land, Exploring Our Unseen Reality, as well as the Transactional Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics, The Reality of Possibility. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ruth. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about a um, topic that's a little bit far afield from the normal work that you do in quantum physics and philosophy. We're going to look at postmortem survival and uh, how it might fit into various interpretations of physical theory. I uh, know that when we had our initial conversation about this, I brought up the letter that Einstein had written to the widow of his best friend, Michele Besso, who uh, I think is maybe one of the few people who he credits helped him in some of his major discoveries like special relativity and and so on. But uh, Besso died about a month or two before Einstein died. And in his letter to Besso's widow, he referred to uh, uh, the idea. He was trying to console her. And he said, few people understand like your husband and I, because we are true believers in physics. And we know that the distinction between past, present, and future is nothing more than a tenaciously stubborn illusion. And, and that seemed to be uh, Im- implying some form of postmortem survival. And I, I thought that would be a good starting point for our conversation. Okay. And of course, you know, I'm a great admirer of Einstein. Uh, I do think in this case, he fell victim to, I mean, I'm going to dispute it. I'm, go- I'm going to dispute the notion that, that physics demands this sort of eternalist ontology ontology being meaning what is the nature of reality what is what really exists and so on um it was a very predominant reaction to relativity during einstein's time um the, for various reasons that are somewhat technical um the physicists of that era and and even today have come to the conclusion that relativity requires this this sort of um all at once picture. Um, and if you, if you come to that conclusion, then according to this picture, all events, space-time is sort of a block of events, and it's just, they're all laid out from the Big Bang or whenever it all began to the very end of whatever is, exists, and that's, that time is, in other words, time is sort of spatialized. It's, it's viewed as as just another parameter of the extent of of where events are located. 
And, and this really isn't necessary. And, um, the reason, the reasons that it's not necessary, I do go into in some detail in my books. But, um, you know, given that Einstein felt this way, and it, it is, it's a prevailing ontology that I think does get us into trouble if we, if we do take it very seriously. Uh, you can kind of see how he, he was thinking, well, uh, in this eternalist picture, it's very, very much like Parmenides, the Greek philosopher Parmenides, who, who had this sort of eternalist notion of the universe. And, uh, it, it could perhaps give some comfort to someone who wants to, to think of, um, their, their loved one as identifying with him with these events that exist in space time in some eternal sense. So perhaps, you know, he felt, well, that's, that's some consolation I can offer. I, I think we, we can do better than that, but, uh, that's, you know, my initial impression of that idea. What Einstein was referring to is today is people think of it as the block universe, don't they? And uh, I'm pretty sure the notion is that this is completely determined. Everything is deterministic. There's no room for free will or uh, even true randomness, I imagine. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the the idea, if you if you sort of take this block world idea seriously, then that means um, for any of us at at any particular time, you know, we look at our watch and we go, okay, it's you know four fifteen p.m. Eastern Standard Time here. Um, you know, tomorrow, whatever's going to happen to me, whatever I'm going to do, is in the block world. It exists as an event with probability one meaning that no other event is possible for the future. So it, in, a, in a sense, that imposes an idea of fate on you. And, uh, I mean, the strange thing is that a lot of people profess this block world picture, and yet they still want to um, maintain the idea that they have free will in some sense. So that gets us into very, you know, convoluted and sophisticated arguments about, you know, how are we going to define free will so that even though whatever I do tomorrow is in the block world and cannot be avoided, somehow I still have freedom to choose it. So we, you know, there are people who very, very seriously argue that, yeah, I can do that. that then there are other people who say, no, it's a block world. I'm going to, you know, if they're going to buy into the block world, then they say, okay, well, I don't have free will and that's okay. So they, they usually say that I'm okay with that. So this is the kind of the two reactions that you get to from people who, who espouse this block world picture. It's still held by many people in, in the field of physics today, in spite of all of the findings of uh, quantum mechanics, which seem uh, to be incompatible with relativity. The way that um, a lot of people deal with these problems in quantum theory is they say, okay, well, in a sense, maybe determinism might have to to fall away, although you can keep determinism with hidden variables. There are many different kinds of models, but, but there are ways that you can make uh, a model or give an interpretation in quantum theory that preserves the idea that all events exist in a block world, it could be that there are discontinuities so that if, if someone says, okay, well, it's not a, strictly speaking, it's not deterministic, then they'll have things called indeterministic block world models where there are just these brute force con discontinuities and one event follows another that seems to not follow from any deterministic law, but it just 
happens. And so the bottom line with these interpretations is they have to take all measurement results as given. They have to assume, you know, whatever measurement anyone does in the future it is has an outcome. It may be that it doesn't arise according to a deterministic law, but it exists in the block world. Um, that, you know, a year from now when, you know, Professor X does his spin experiment on that electron in that lab in Brookhaven, the result he's going to get exists in the block world. There's nothing anyone can do to change that. Right. So, so there's still, that's called super determinism that, that some people call that super determinism. I mean, everything is just spoken for, cast in concrete and, and end of story. So this is, this is a view that is held by a sizable percentage, maybe even a majority of people today in, in the field of physics. I think so. I would say so. Yeah. And of course, I'm in the minority. I, 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 I think that's probably wrong. We'll be talking about your interpretation of quantum physics as, as well. But uh, before we go there, wouldn't the, the idea of the black world sort of implies that every moment is eternal, which is a, a, an idea you find in the writings of mystics? Every moment is eternal. So, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful thought. And... um. I would say that that actually applies more to a becoming model in the sense that, you know, we've talked about before in our other conversations and we, we may touch on today. Uh, when it comes to the block world, you can't even really define a moment in a sense. That's, that's one of the, you know, basically it's, it's a bunch of events where event simply means a particular occurrence, uh, or I guess they would also say a hunk of matter. You know, a hunk of matter is at point X at time T, but such descriptions aren't really fully correct because they're all relative to a particular inertial frame and so on. So they aren't invariant descriptions. But you'd have to say that um, all events are eternal in a sense. And you could say that it's an eternalist view. So in the sense of, uh, you know, what is a moment? I'm not sure. Uh, that's one of the challenges because it, it, with the block world, because that's a, arguably a temporal sort of notion, a moment, uh, you know. So it, it, it certainly does have the eternalist character in terms of all the events are eternal. I'm also under the impression uh from what little I really understand a general relativity, that because time stops, if I'm traveling on a photon at the speed of light and I should have happen to have a watch, it wouldn't move. I can travel uh, across the universe and no time would have taken place at all. That does sort of imply an eternalist vision of uh, the physical universe. Well, it's an eternalist um, experience for that photon, we might say. Um, that, that particular photon, you know, we have to consider what's our perspective here. From the stand, from the, if you're that photon, while you're in existence, you aren't going anywhere. Okay? Your, your clock doesn't move. And from your standpoint, there's no separation between, say, the atom, say, or whatever it was that emitted you, and the other atom that absorbs you, they are there. There's no, you, you perceive no separation. So you're not going anywhere. Um, however, um, 
from our standpoint, from a, this, and actually when I say our standpoint, from the standpoint of a system with rest mass, like a, you know, if you imagine yourself as an atom, you make yourself very small, make or shrink ourselves down and pretend we're an atom with our own, we, an atom has its own kind of internal periodicity, which establishes a kind of time axis for it. From its point of view, that, that photon had a finite lifetime. It did have a finite lifetime. So, you know, we have to consider whose, whose experience are we talking about? Whose vantage point are we talking about? In other words, it's all relative. Yeah, Einstein was right about that. I mean, you can still say, uh, certain things. You can, you can definitely say that, uh, given the, as measured by the atom's clock, that photon had a lifetime of X milliseconds or whatever. So you, you can, you can say these things and you could actually make a diagram of it that would show, um, at least from various inertial frames, the finite lifetime of the photon. So, uh, I mean, who knows if you were a photon, maybe you could go, Hey, I'm, I'm alive. Oh, I'm dead. (laughs) You know, who knows? I mean, we don't know whether the photon would experience a sense of, of eternity or not. We only know that it's, it's not going to see any lapse of time or, or spatial separation at, during its lifetime. The eternalist view that we've been discussing, the block universe view, is sort of opposed to another perspective, the one that you hold, which I think you call a dynamical view of the universe as opposed to an eternalist view. Right. I mean, the, the model that I've been exploring does have a form of, of real change and becoming in the sense that the, um, the, the space-time manifold does grow and change and it, 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 it gathers new events. Um, the, the other aspect of this model, however, is you could say that it has a kind of eternal feature to it in that that space-time construct doesn't just grow out of nothing. It actually grows out of the quantum level, which I I think of as a substratum. So I, I call it the quantum substratum, which actually is comprised of of the rest mass systems, things like atoms and and you know uh, the content of of matter as we think of it. So um, it is from these systems that the space time construct dynamically emerges. But at the level of these systems, you can say they they have kind of an internal periodicity like that uh, atom I just mentioned. But those kinds of internal clocks, if you will, are not features of space-time. They are, they are dynamical processes, but they are going on and in this quantum substratum. So it's, it's a kind of a radical idea in a way because um, it demands that we think of our whole idea of temporality very differently. Um, we can think actually of this quantum substratum, which is technically outside the space-time manifold. It, it's the birthplace of space-time events, and it is uh, it is a dynamical domain. But yet, it doesn't. It's not characterized by time as we would measure it for space-time events. So we can't say, uh, you know, there's an event here, an event there, and they're separated by uh, a certain amount of time. We cannot apply those kinds of metrical measures to it. So in that sense, it's 
it's, um, it doesn't have the, the temporal and spatial aspects of space-time events. Whether you want to call that eternal, I don't know. In other words, you're postulating some sort of a reality, uh, a very ontologically real reality that we've talked about several times in previous interviews, apart from the uh, four-dimensional space-time matrix of uh, the Einstein-Minkowski universe. Exactly, right. And, and in, in, in my proposal, and others have proposed this idea too, it's actually getting a little bit more recent attention, the idea that, that space-time is a manifold that's actually emergent. And it, it, um, that this domain is, is kind of a domain of possibility, and that that's what quantum mechanics is describing. So it's kind of a natural way to interpret quantum theory and say that, you know, quantum theory seems to have all these strange features, the, the sort of the fuzzy indeterminism, the non-locality, the, the aspects that, that seem to be at, in conflict with the strictures of relativity. It makes sense if this is describing a, a domain of possibilities that is, exists at some subtler level that can, can be actualized into specific space-time events, which are then kind of just the tip of the iceberg. And I represent this by kind of a geode picture. I think that, that thinking of a geode kind of gives us a nice analogy in that the possibilities are like the, the fluid that's, that, that flows around the mineral-laden fluid that flows through rocks. And then with, when you have a gap in the rocks, it can, can sort of crystallize in the interior. And that, that this crystallization is just a small residue of all of the, the fluid that's there. And that's, that's really what is this, the so-called space-time construct. So it's actually a very small part of reality. Now, in an earlier conversation, you suggested to me that Einstein's vision of how his friend Michele Besso uh, might have survived in a block universe seems rather pale and, and hollow, meaning, you know, well, he, he exists in the past. The past still exists somehow, that the dynamical universe that you uh, are describing ha has greater possibilities for postmortem survival. Well, yeah, I, I sort of thought of, you know, Einstein being a, the good-hearted soul that he was, w wanted to sort of offer some consolation. But when I thought about it, it just seemed very restricted, you know. Okay, well, your husband was just this collection of space-time events, <laughs> you know. And I, I sort of feel as though when, when people talk about, uh, when they explore the, these ideas of, of um, survival of death, which we we hear a lot about and we hear a lot of very interesting um, experiences that, that people have shared. Uh, I'm just one of those, you know, paranormally challenged people. I've, I've never had any kind of, you know, near death experience or, or anything like that. But, but I, I am interested in these experiences. And, um, and I think that we have to take seriously what people are reporting. Um, it, it occurred to me that, you know, we have to think, well, what, when we, when we ask ourselves, do we survive death? What, what are we? What am I saying? If I, is there something about me that's going to survive death? Clearly, I don't mean my physical body. So, so right away, we're dealing with an aspect of existence that necessarily must go beyond physicality and matter in the way that physics usually uh, conceptualizes it. 
So right away, we are, if we even want to entertain these kinds of questions, we, we kind of have to set aside the, the Cartesian dead matter idea of, of ourselves. Because if that's all we are, then, you know, and consciousness is an illusion, as some people like to say, I always wonder how people can say that, you know, have an opinion if they, if consciousness is an illusion. But, you know, if, if we're going to be just brute force physicalists, then we kind of can't even entertain the question. So it, it puts us in this area of examining the self. It, are there aspects of the self that transcend the physical understood in that limited way. So that's, that's kind of the starting point as I see it. I mean, the suggestion would be that in this realm of possibility, the afterlife exists. If we understand physical in this new way, uh, quantum theory is a physical theory, but clearly I think, and others, you know, think it may be pointing to this greater reality, to this more subtle aspect of reality that could be possibility that seems more abstract and transcends this very superficial space-time concrete world of appearance. So if if that is what quantum theory might be telling us, that if in fact there is this subtler domain of to reality, then it seems to make sense that that would be an area that could support um the idea of the purely mental or even a spiritual dimension to life so that, so that you'd have room in given to you, you know, courtesy of an actual physical, physical theory by which we don't mean dead matter, but, but a theory arrived at through science, um, that this theory may be telling us that reality has these subtler aspects. And in this domain, it's conceivable that, you know, if the concrete physical aspect of you falls away that that there's more to you than just that and that there's a place for that to exist so it, it seems to me to open the door for that there are a number of theorists who uh, try to look at this in terms of hyperspace higher dimensions of space rather than the four-dimensional space time model and you see you know, that uh, notion being employed these days in uh, string theory and uh, M theory, all of these exotic uh, attempts to unify the forces of physics. Uh, does your approach, the transactional interpretation, allow for hyperspace? Well, it does, and understood in a different way. Um, the term hyperspace can mean, you know, basically a space, a physical space that is not the the mere three plus one dimensions of space time. Um, those are very specific theories with specific kinds of uh, structures to them. Um, and they are certainly, you know, entertaining the idea that reality is larger than we thought. What I'm doing is I'm taking the kinds of physical spaces that apply to quantum theory, to just standard quantum theory. So this isn't a new uh, a theory, uh, you know, on the, uh, along the lines of the, those ones you've mentioned, but it does deal with quantum theory in the sense that Quantum theory requires mathematical spaces that are way bigger than space-time and have different, a completely different, a richer mathematical character in that they're complex, they involve complex numbers. So we can consider that a kind of a hyperspace, if you will. It's the, it's the, it's the ordinary quantum mechanical hyperspace, but it's a, it's, it's a mathematical structure 
that is vastly larger than than space time, and and it does seem to lend itself to this uh, interpretation as describing possibilities. Because with possibilities, they they can't all happen. So you're going to have many more possibilities than you could ever have, you know, actualized in space time. So then it's natural to think that they would have this much larger, richer character. Well, and and so the idea there being that if this realm of possibility is ontologically real, it has to be somewhere. And if it is somewhere, then even if it's not in our normal space-time matrix, it would still be mathematically describable. And the same thing could be said, therefore, of the Jungian collective unconscious, the Tibetan bardo planes, uh, where the afterlife uh, supposedly occurs, and uh, uh, all sorts of other imaginary or imaginal uh, or hypothetical uh, realities. Yes, the uh, the Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime. The you know there there are countless examples of certainly in, in indigenous and religious and, and spiritual traditions having uh, the these domains of of uh, that you could call imaginal. Some people have used that term, um, and certainly the way I'm interpreting quantum theory. As you said, I interpret the, this domain as as real in the sense that it is it is it it exists in reality. So the fact that it it doesn't exist in space time is is really uh, demands of us that we expand our notion, uh, the usual notion that space time is sort of a container for everything that exists, with, which has been the default kind of unexamined assumption. So yeah, what I'm saying is no, we need to examine that more critically and consider the idea that that certain um, aspects of reality are, are simply not contained in space and time. And and there's ample interior experience of these kinds of concepts, even though that wouldn't be admissible in, in you know, Western scientific thought. Nevertheless, it is Western scientific thought that came up with quantum theory. So certainly it, it's pointing in that direction, I think. Yeah, sometimes the uh, theories that we have are pointing to areas that are presently admissible for sociological reasons, not logical reasons. Right, right. Yes, certainly. And and Thomas Kuhn uh, examined this whole phenomenon in in terms of paradigm changes and so on, that sometimes uh, science, I think, I believe science really does progress. And I think that it does help us learn about reality. But sometimes we have to reconceptualize our world in order to really uh, be able to make those make those leaps and and see things in a different way and and allow for possible ways of understanding that we may not have allowed before. Now I would like to uh, push some of these ideas a step further, if if I may, to the to the notion that possibly the universe as a whole is conscious or has a purpose, a teleology. And uh, I read a little bit in in one of your books where you touch on this briefly in reference to uh, what is called the principle of least action, which some philosophers have interpreted as as to mean that there's a a teleology in in the universe, a purpose. And in your work, when you refer to the idea of uh, the emitting atom and then the receiving atom, 
uh, for a photon. You're talking about uh, something very similar, actually, that uh, some future event, uh, the atom that's going to receive the photon is acting uh, uh, in a way uh, to influence the photon even before it gets there. Well, yeah, there are a lot of lot of ideas here, and um, I guess for, we could just touch on the principle of least action first. That that's kind of an interesting. I mean, you know, there's a way to interpret that without assigning any kind of intent or design to it uh, in purely physical uh, in a purely physical way in terms of well, the waves are going to cancel out. They're all going to cancel out except for this one, and then we're going all going to get reinforced and so on. But but nevertheless, there's an economy. A, a beautiful economy to the way that works that uh, that seems highly you know non-random that it's it reminds me of Einstein's um, and Wigner's comments that that the the amazing thing about nature is that it is intelligible and that it, it seems to have these these elegant symmetries and these elegant uh, ways of behaving um, and you know the idea of the the other aspect you mentioned where, You've got, um, in my picture, you've got emitters and absorbers that are required both together in order to create a photon, in order to have a transaction. These, these negotiations and this, this sort of uh, influencing, mutual influencing, is actually happening in this quantum substratum. So it's all going on behind the scenes. And... And we can think of that as kind of the eternal now is the way I... I think of it because again, it's not, it's not a part of the space time construct, but it's, it's, it's there ready to give rise to a space time, to one or more space time events. So if you're, uh, you know, one of these, these emitters and absorbers, they are aware of each other and it's a kind of a non-local communication because again, in this pre-space time realm, the idea of separation isn't defined. So, so there are different ways of, of defining closeness and it has to do with how probable is it that, that if I, if I'm an emitting excited atom, how, how probable is it that if I emit this photon, it's going to get to this atom here as opposed to this one here. It has to do with probabilities rather than closeness in the usual sense. But there's this sort of, um, a communication, a mutual influencing. And at one point, um, an interaction occurs. And one of these competing absorbers will ultimately receive this photon. It's only at that point that you actually get kind of a strand of yarn, if you will, that, that gets pulled out and creates a new space-time interval. And it's these events that, that are created. So the, the systems themselves are still, they're still behind the scenes. It's really much like a movie set. It's like actors and the director saying, okay, what are we going to do? I've got this scene. I've got, I've got a dialogue. Okay, well, I don't like that. I'm going to change that, you know, whatever. And then, then they film a scene. That's a hunk of space time. The actors and the directors are not in that. They aren't literally in that hunk of film. They're still ready to do some more. So that's really a nice analogy for, for this picture. And in that sense, um, there's, it, it's not, there's not so much the future saying, dictating anything. It's, it's actually an eternal now that's a birthplace of space-time events. And for any given absorber, suppose you're the, the winning absorber. Oh, look, I got, I got this photon. I'm excited now and I can become an emitter. You know, it, from your vantage point, this, this, uh, event 
this interplay and this 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 interval it, um, establishes the emission event in your past. So if you're that atom, then from your standpoint, the the emission occurred in the past relative to you, and then you can define that. But that's only after the fact. It's after this this interaction has occurred. Well, in a sense, you're anthropomorphizing the yeah, atoms. Actually. If I could just, you know what, whenever we, whenever I'm, I'm an animator, I get little, little peanuts and make them talk, you know? So I'm always animate. I'm always animating things. That's what I do with my grandson. I should make a, anyway, I won't do it here. So, and I, you can, you can sort of impute maybe an intention or a perspective to something that it, it doesn't mean that we're anthropomorphizing. So I'm, you know, I think, um, we, we could say, uh, animal, maybe animals have intent, who knows? Maybe an atom has intent. I don't know, you know. But uh, but yes, I'm I'm sort of t- I'm taking the point of view of of an atom just for fun, if you will. Um, but yes, so go ahead and and. Well, there is a deeper philosophical issue here, which is consciousness itself. Where where does consciousness reside? Uh, uh, you know, Jung postulated uh, uh, this idea of the collective unconscious. It's uh, widely accepted, I think, in psychology today, yet it, it needs to exist somewhere. And Jung even went further and suggested that uh, the afterlife, the dead, exist within the collective unconscious. So it, it suggests to me that in this realm of possibility that you're describing, it's not just inanimate uh potentials, that there's there's a sense of aliveness about it, and that the fact that you were anthropomorphizing the, the interactions there seems to me to be more than just uh, a particular dramatic style that you've taken up, but, the, but there's, there's something deeper there. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the idea that the experiences that people have had and the, the Jungian theory of the collective unconscious, that there is there is this sort of body of 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 research and study and experience that does fit in with the idea that there is more to reality than the sort of concrete actual space time realm, and certainly if um, we, we note that that the quantum systems are often thought of as abstract. You know, and that's one of the things that bothered Niels Bohr, that he couldn't make these things fit into space time. So he immediately said, well, they're abstract. It, it simply means that they're not tangible by the usual five senses. If, if you allow for this broader reality, then you then there's no reason to exclude um, the sort of subjective side of life and um, the idea that you know, as I spoke of the, the, that these, these systems are, are in this subtler quantum substratum and sort of talking to each other. And I'm using this kind of language, this, this animating language, but, but, um, we, we can certainly even look to this domain for, for an explanation for why one outcome gets actualized as opposed to others. There, there could be an element of choice there. So this idea of, of volition and intention and all of these concepts that are, that are excluded from physical theory done in the usual conventional way, 
don't don't need to be excluded. Obviously, you have to be careful because you can't um, you you cannot quantify these things in the usual way. So you always have to say, okay, well, it's speculative, you know, and it's not going to be part of an official theory. But but there's certainly an opening at the level of possibility for these other kinds of of aspects to enter. And other people, I think Freeman Dyson once pointed out that that you can think of of subatomic or atomic uh, quantum systems as having some element of choice and volition and mind. So there have been quite a few scientists who have also entertained that that possibility. Yeah, when I first learned about the principle of least action, it was from my mentor, Arthur M. Young, the inventor of the Bell helicopter. And he at that time, and I've subsequently learned to other philosophers, seemed to suggest that it, it meant that the photon had a measure of intention, a measure of purpose, that uh, it wasn't following the path of least resistance. It was following the path of least action, which suggested it had to know in advance what that path was. Here's where I think the transactional interpretation really explains that in a much better way. Um, because if you have these kinds of um, interactions at the quantum level between an emitter and an absorber, then that's actually going to set up the conditions whereby the, the photon will, the photon is kind of in a sense doing all of that reconnaissance, exploring what, you know, what's going to be the most economical way for me to do this. And it has, it has different choices usually, you know, and depending on your setup, it can have different choices, not just one. Um, but there are, um, this is a nice way to understand the kind of otherwise seemingly inexplicable uh, maybe not inexplicable, but it it provides a nice, elegant way to understand how the photon is is getting uh, the knowledge and the information that it needs to follow this most economical path. That and not sort of uh, having the future literally, you know, reaching back into the past, but having this kind of negotiation that takes place. Before we close our interview, I want to uh, address one other question with you about uh, philosophy and uh, the mind-body problem in in philosophy. It, it seems to me that one of the uh, principles that runs throughout all of philosophy and all of science is Occam's razor, that the, the simplest theory is always to be preferred if it can explain all the relevant variables. And the philosopher Bernardo Castrop, who I think you may know, uh, has argued, I think rather effectively, that philosophical idealism, the idea that the entire universe is basically mental uh, in nature, is the simplest uh, theory and, and therefore should be preferred because uh, to assume that there's such a thing as an inanimate world out there means that we're uh, postulating something that isn't immediately available to our consciousness. It's something we assume on the basis of sensory experience. Yes, well, you can definitely make a good Occam's razor argument for, for idealism, as, as you've just noted. I mean, there's the other problem, of course, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to be pure materialist, 
then you have the hot, the hard problem of consciousness. If you're dealing with the with you're assuming matter is inherently non-sentient, you really can't get sentience from that unless you you know smuggle it in and play play little games of wanting to have it both ways. If you do the dualism thing, then you run into Descartes' problem of trying to explain how how a mental substance can interact with something that that is completely non-mental and there's no way for them to do that. So it doesn't really work. I mean, the you know the the idea of matter, uh, inanimate matter, is just a postulate. It's a metaphysical postulate that uh, I think has has given rise to a lot of problems and dead ends. So, I mean, my my personal um, my personal opinion on the matter is well, it, it would have to be idealism if you know just for rational coherency, uh, consistency reasons. But I would add that you know what. What seems so hard to believe, I think, for people who are more traditional and more materialist, is it sounds, um, you know, like I guess Sam Harris would say, it sounds too woo, right? To say that that everything is mental because mental just seems too subjectivist and it has a lot of bad connotations. So I, I think that's what we need to look at next is um, clearly, if given that we're sentient, and no one can tell me I'm not sentient, you know. <laughs> I mean, I may be wrong, but I know I'm sentient, which is basically what Descartes showed in, you know, his cogito, that the that mental substance shouldn't be taken seriously. It's because people, I think, are minimizing it and, and thinking that it can't, it doesn't have any potency. It doesn't have any ability to manifest and to create and so so what's intriguing is that it could be that in fact that's wrong and that that what quantum theory is telling us is that there's this whole supposedly abstract realm that we can think of as mental and yet and yet it gives rise to all this experience and all there's a lot of stuff going on here there's a lot of action and 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 things are real and if you run out into traffic you're going to get hurt and it it's it's very substantial in that sense so perhaps we need to re-understand or or uh, become reacquainted with what do we mean by mental substance? And does that mean that it's because it's not something um, defined as something that I can bang on, does that mean it's not strong and and have a lot of power? And that's what we need. I think we need to think about that because maybe we're wrong about that, that maybe mental substance has a lot more muscle to it than we thought. Well, you know, I brought that idea up in a conversation with Bernardo, who's probably one of the premier idealist philosophers around today. And uh, he pointed out that uh, this hard stuff that we knock on, that is our conscious experience. The universe feels hard and feels solid because that's our experience of it. Exactly. And so we what we have are phenomena. So we have phenomena and I mean, I'm I'm a physicist, so and I'm I'm very interested in why these phenomena occur, and and I want to know what's really going on underneath the phenomena. But but it but the more you study that, the more you find that what's going on underneath the phenomena is is by your usual definition abstract. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It doesn't mean it's not real. You know, it's uh, definitely very consequential. Very consequential. But. It's, um, I think it's a paradigm shift in trying to 
I, I think a lot of people are put off by that because they think that when you're saying everything's mental, that you're saying, you know, no, this table doesn't really exist or something. Oh, no, I think this table definitely exists. I think it's just very, very, very different from what, what we thought. And it may not be made of dead matter, but it, it's definitely very real and very consequential. So do you consider yourself an idealist then? I guess so. I, I mean, I, I don't even like to use the term because it's usually defined in, in such a pejorative way. But so, I mean, I think that um, we have to make some distinctions. I think there's a big difference between uh, what I would call the physical possibilities that comprise this table and some random thought I might have in my mind. So I think we have to make an important distinction between those and they have different kinds of reality and they can be be understood in physical terms by which I mean a physical theory. A specific physical theory will tell me why a thought in my head is less effective and less substantial perhaps than this table. So I, I, I would want to make um, very specific uh, you know distinctions of that kind. But so I, I there are many different flavors of idealism. And, and I definitely would reject some of them. But in that limited sense, I mean, in, in the sense that whatever substance it is that provides for, for experience, that has to be a fundamental part of the world, because otherwise you, you're not going to get it. And given uh, all of these considerations that we're talking about, I think it's fair uh, for me to conclude, and tell me if I'm wrong, that uh, your understanding of the physical world does not rule out the possibility of post-mortem survival of human consciousness. Oh, no, it certainly doesn't rule it out. And again, it, 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 it depends on, well, what, what is it, the me that survives? If, if we are to survive, what is that? It, it's obviously something subtle. But there's certainly room for it, given that in my proposal, you know, not everything that exists is part of space-time. And in fact, most of it isn't. Well, Ruth Kastner, once again, this has been a stimulating conversation. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been fun. I appreciate it. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.